Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I get to welcome back Andy Dave Davis. Andy, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Well, Dave, it's a delight to be with you again. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, I, I, I've enjoyed just catching up with you a little bit and uh, hearing a little bit about what, what the Lord's doing in your life, and that's wonderful. Um, can you please catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry projects that you're working on? Absolutely. I um, just passed my 20th anniversary at First Baptist Church in Durham, so I was excited about that. The church was very gracious, uh, got a lot of encouragement, a lot of people um, blessing me and my wife, and it's just been a joy to be here for uh, 20 years. Incredible. Uh, also, my wife and I just past our 30th wedding anniversary, so uh, it's just been amazing for us to, to uh, minister together here in Durham. Uh, in terms of uh, projects, I'm writing a book uh, right now on heaven, uh, actually, and I'm excited about that. I, the the uh, focus of the book is what we will remember in heaven about our earthly lives, and I'm going to argue that for the glory of God, we're going to remember everything, that God is going to unfold what he did in history to assemble people from every tribe, language, people, and nation for his glory. So it's just been an amazing study, and I've been very encouraged. Uh, so that's some of what's going on in my life. Wow, that that book sounds wonderful, and congratulations on, on 20 years at FBC Durham. That's uh, that's that's definitely all of God's grace, and I know. Absolutely. I can, I can say this. There's no church I would rather pastor than this one. The people here are amazing, and we're in a, a strategic location. Praise God. Um, so today we're going to talk about your book uh, that's that's coming out here soon, The Power of Christian Contentment, uh, Finding Deeper, Richer, Christ-Centered Joy. Can you please tell us why you wrote it and how you hope it's going to be received? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for a number of years I've been captivated by a, a moment in the life of, of the Apostle Paul, and that's when he and Silas were arrested in Philippi and thrown into a jail, and uh, they'd been beaten, they had been uh, humiliated, uh, they were put in the inner cell with stocks in their feet, and there at midnight they are singing praise songs to God. And I think about that as the pinnacle of Christian sanctification, that you can have nothing going for you on earth, uh, everything going against you. For all they knew, they might even be executed the next day. But there they were singing, and uh, even more powerfully, lost people were listening to them as they were singing. And I thought, I've taught my kids this, I said, if we could just be, through Christ, through the power of the Spirit, like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, there's no earthly circumstance we're ever going to go through that even comes close to that, probably. And uh, so that captivated me. Also, along with that, uh, I started studying Christian contentment uh, with other writers, and I found a Puritan writer named Jeremiah Burroughs, who lived in the 17th century, and in 1642, he wrote a book based on what Paul wrote in Philippians 4, where Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Uh, he wrote a meditation on that entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And Puritan writers just do amazing work, but they're hard to read for the 21st century audience. And so I thought it might be beneficial for me to kind of simplify some of the language, modernize it, use some of my own illustrations, mix it, mix it together with my own teaching, and and that was the concept for the book. Well, I thought that it was uh, it was very good, um, excellent, and it couldn't have come at a better time. My my uh, walk with Christ as God has been teaching me contentment in the last 
many years and uh, I told you off air I'll, I'll say it now you know I've been applying for pastor positions and in that process I've I've got discouraged and I've, I've stopped applying and now I'm back to applying and, and I feel like uh, what's what's the difference um, I think the difference is I, I I've accepted the fact that you know God is an uh, experience that God is is truly sovereign and I can rest in that and be content and I feel like um, because of that I feel like well not there's not a causal relationship I would say but I feel like also that God has uh, given me the opportunity to, to have some interviews and I've been really encouraged by that and uh, I've been applying just to be clear about pa- for pastor positions and so I've been really thankful for that and so your book came yeah. at a good time for me to uh, to be further instructed in these truths. Yeah. Well, praise God. Praise God. That's encouraging. Yeah. What's your definition of Christian contentment? Well, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go two ways with this. First, um, in the study that I did in Philippians four, where Paul says I've learned the secret of being content. Um, the word he uses uh, that's translated content is a really interesting word, and I didn't realize this, but uh, I looked I looked into it and I was surprised by it. Um, the word he used could simply be translated self sufficient. Paul says I've learned to be self sufficient in any and every situation. And the funny thing about that is that that seems to go contrary to things Paul and frankly Christ teaches in other places. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branch. Uh, apart from me, you can do nothing. And uh, Paul was consistently uh, teaching that we should not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead in 2 Corinthians 1. So what does he mean there? And I think what it means is that it's similar to the doctrine of God's aseity or his self-sufficiency, where God doesn't need anything in creation, nothing at all. We, we don't add anything to God's existence or to his well-being, but actually he gives of himself uh, from those things. Uh, all Everything that we need for life, uh, for every, in him we live and move and have our being, but we don't give anything to God. Actually, Romans 11 says, uh, for from him and through him and to him are all things. God is self-sufficient, but I think it, it, Paul's thinking that way about himself, and I think we would take the word self out, and just God's self-sufficiency is really God's sufficiency, and Paul's saying, I am also like that, God's sufficient. Having God or having Christ, I I don't need anything in the created world. Uh, I don't have to have anything. And so that's an interesting meditation on what Paul meant. I've learned the secret of being self-sufficient. I think really means I've learned the secret of being God-sufficient or Christ-sufficient in any and every situation. In other words, God or Christ is enough for me. If I have Christ, I don't need anything else. So that was a, a very powerful meditation for me. And then I had to kind of walk around and kick the tires on it a little bit, test it, and say, is that even true? Um, would Paul say that he needed uh, food, clothing, and shelter? He's like, well, of course he needs those to stay alive, physically. but actually he doesn't need to stay alive physically. For him, he says in Philippians, to depart and be with Christ is better by far. And once you get to that point, you say, hey, you know, I don't actually need anything even to stay alive because there is a heaven waiting for me. All I need in this world is to please God, do his will, and then and just take whatever God gives me circumstantially, that really sets you free. At that point, you don't have to have the things you thought you had to have in order to be happy, in order to be fruitful. What you have is in Christ, you have everything. So that was one. And then the other is uh, Burroughs' definition. Um, and Burroughs' definition is a dense theological definition. And uh, I'll go ahead and, and recite it to you. I pretty much have it memorized because I've gone over this so many times and it's such an encouragement. But Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, defined Christian contentment as this. It's that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So I know that's pretty dense, Dave, but let me, let me just break it into three parts. First, it's a frame of spirit or an attitude of the heart. 
Christian contentment's an attitude. He, he describes it with four adjectives, sweet, inward, quiet, gracious. And then secondly, it has to do with God's providence or God's disposal. It's an odd word he uses, but just God's choices for your life, God's kingly decisions for your life. And and it puts the two together by saying that we uh, freely submit to and delight in what God chooses for our life. So it's a frame of spirit or an attitude that freely submits to what God chooses for our lives and delights in it, actually. So that's uh, some definitions. Mm, that's really helpful. Uh, one thing that stood out when you were talking about uh, the sufficiency there uh, in the first part was, you know, in, in Philippians 4, 4, Paul commands us to rejoice. And then in verse 13, we know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What I noticed, I noticed that in the, the those two passages bookend, and then we have, you know, being just for nothing and everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and minds of Christ Jesus. Well, then he goes on and talks about what you just talked about, contentment. And that the command to rejoice and the command or the, the teaching about, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah. It's in that context, you know, the bookend. Yeah. So Paul wants us to not only rejoice, but to, I think we could we could infer by the context, to rejoice because Christ is sufficient. Absolutely. That's, that's a great statement. You know, it's funny, in a simplistic kind of everyday life way, not theological or whatever, but when people think of contentment, <laughs> I think that it has two basic ingredients, and that's um, joy and peace, kind of a peaceful joy or a joyful peace uh, about what's going on. That's what the way people generally use the word content and there both of those are in Philippians 4. How do you personally fight for contentment in your own Christian life? Well, I, I, I want to be honest with you. Uh, it's important to say this. Um, you know, when you write a book, sometimes people can misunderstand the relationship between the author and the subject. Um, I am not claiming what Paul did claim to have learned this secret. I am learning, Dave, the secret, but I haven't learned it. Um, and it's a struggle. And actually, this book has kind of worked me over, if I can be honest. It's just showed me so many areas of discontentment in my life, so many areas of complaining. Um, so I just want to put a disclaimer here. I'm, I'm not claiming to be any, even even in the top 10 percentile of world experts in, in Christian contentment. Uh, it's a very challenging topic, actually. It stands over me every day, and the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, reminds me of the themes that I've learned. So uh, I'm, I'm in the process of learning it. Um, but I guess for me, some of the, the meditations, the scriptures that I went over as I was going through Jeremiah Burroughs' book, as I was going through the scripture, have been very helpful for me. And uh, just just knowing the definition uh, and and knowing that at every moment uh, God has God commands me to be content. Hebrews 13, he says, be content with what you have. And so it's a commandment. It's, it's not just, you know, you might want to think about it. It's something that God expects and commands us to do every day. So I start with the fact that it's a command. And with any command in the Christian life, I bring it back to God saying, I can't do this um, apart from you. Would you please work this in me by the power of your spirit through the blood of Christ, through his example, work this contentment in me. So that's that's where I begin on this theme. Well, I, I personally find it refreshing whenever an author just says, hey, um, I wrote on this subject, but I don't have it all figured out and the Lord is at work in me. I, I think that that really resonates with people because, you know, we don't, we don't, even though we write on things and I, and I write too, um, that doesn't mean that we have it all figured out, you know. Nope. Some uh, Tim Challies, I think, says something helpful. I don't know a thing until I write, and I think that is just so right because you know we're we're still figuring out these things. We're still growing in these things just because you yeah. know we even even if you have a PhD in theology or and you're a yeah. so-called expert in a certain field of theology, that that doesn't mean that you know everything even in that field. And no. uh, the same is equally true in the Christian life. Just because somebody's gone to seminary 
documentary or studied and read a ton of books, that doesn't mean that they know everything. And we, uh, especially with writing, we don't know everything, and so we're still growing. And that, so I just really appreciate what you just said. Absolutely. And, and Jesus put it very simply. He said, um, you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So yeah, that kind of says it all. There's a big difference between knowing something and doing it. So <clears throat> in the midst of, of, of a life circumstance that I might find in my flesh very perplexing, you could catch me easily being discontent. And you could come and say, well, here's your definition, right? This is what you wrote. And it's like, yes, I know it. I'm just not doing it. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the issue. It's just, oh, Lord, help me to live up to the things you've shown me in the Bible. That's my desire. That's why we need one another, right? We need a... We really do. Yeah, yeah. How does the gospel help Christians to desire to grow in contentment and to train their new desires and affections towards contentment in the Christian life? You know, that's just a, a great question. I, I just want to say that the gospel is sufficient for everything that, that the Lord wants us to do in the Christian life. Everything that we need is in the gospel of Christ, crucified and resurrected, and the gift of the Holy Spirit that flows from Christ. Everything we need is there. And so I guess what I would say is to know that we are sinners, uh, that we cannot save ourselves. And Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the spiritual beggars. I think that's a good translation, the poor in spirit, but the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything that I want to give you, everything in the Christian life is a gift of grace. Just come and beg me for it. Come in and tell me that you don't have it. Be like the, you know, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Be like the tax collector who beats his breast and won't even look up to heaven but says be merciful to me oh god the sinner well we do that in the healthy christian life you do that again and again and again like oh god give me a healthy marriage help me to be a godly husband god help me to be uh, um, a loving and wise father to my children god help me to be a good pastor help me to preach this sermon i can't do that without you would you please help me paul said when i'm weak then i'm strong i think he he left out a, a step uh but you know i don't think he left out in his life but just in that articulation I think when he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, if I take my weakness back to God in prayer. And, and he gives examples of that over and over. So we feel weak, we feel we can't do something, and then we just go to God in prayer and say, Lord, work this in me. So your question is, how is the gospel uh, sufficient? How does it work this in us? We get the topic of Christian contentment, set it in front of us, learn what it is, you know, freely submitting to and delighting in what God chooses for our lives circumstantially. Say, hey, I'm not there, but I see that God wants me to be content. He wants me to trust him and to submit to him. God, would you please work this in me? My sins are covered by the blood of Christ, by the cross of Christ. I have resurrection power in me through being united with Christ by faith. I can do this, as Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that's how I take the gospel and apply it to this topic. Mm, amen, brother. Well said. How can Christians learn to find contentment even in the most difficult and challenging, perhaps even in the mundane of life? Well, those are two different things. Um, let's start with the mundane. Mundane is just everyday life. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I remember my wife was teaching our kids some things and um, she she brought, I think, one of our younger kids to a doctor's appointment and, and the child quickly ripped through the, the three books that he had or she had, I don't remember, as a son or daughter, we got five kids, two sons, three daughters, I don't remember who it was, but, um, and then she, she said, okay, then just sit there and be bored. <laughs> Because so much of life is waiting, all right? And it, I just thought that was an interesting lesson. Uh, so the mundane uh, makes up a lot of our lives. You know, we have another Monday, another Tuesday. We're sitting in traffic. You know, we have ordinary things to do. But all of that is part of the fabric of God's wise plan for our lives. Not every day is going to be a signal day, the best day or the worst day you ever 
ever had. Those are rare days. So for the most part, we have to learn that every moment of every day, there's a purpose. And there are good works that God has ordained for us to do in those mundane activities. And if we are content, as Paul defines it, or as Jeremiah Burroughs helps us to understand, if we're content, we will glorify God in those things. We can eat or drink or whatever we do, we can do it to the glory of God, and contentment's part of that. But then on the issue of the most difficult or most challenging aspects, those are obviously severe trials that come along our, in our lives. It could be uh, a serious illness for a loved one or for ourselves. It could be a financial reversal. It could be a natural disaster uh, that wipes out a home or a business. Uh, could be the death of a child. I mean, there's some very, very painful things that people go through. And what I want to say is that contentment enables us to go through those circumstances the best we possibly can in this world. You can't do any better than trusting God, trusting God in the midst of great pain. And furthermore, in this way, we can be an incredible witness to non-Christians who, frankly, are going through the exact same kinds of sufferings, the same natural disaster, maybe in a community. Or uh, if you, you've got a diagnosis of cancer, you're going to go to the cancer clinic and you'll be surrounded by people who have the same diagnosis as you, uh, but many of them don't have Christ. And it says in First Peter 3.15, we should always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have. And so I think Christian contentment is hope. It's a, it's a, it's a clear uh, trust that God will work out his best in our lives and that we are filled with hope. And that is a remarkable witness to lost people who Paul says in Ephesians 2 are without hope and without God in the world. So just knowing that God's working his purpose out in our lives for our own sanctification, but he's also helping us be witnesses and contentment helps with all of that. I really like how you linked uh, hope or hope in Christ to, you know, God's work in our lives. And that's just so true. We have we have hope to share with people. Um, just reminded, you know, of not only that um, in my teenage years when my parents got divorced, but now, you know, I'm able to help people that are going through marriage difficulties and um, other relational issues because I've I've seen that I've I've gone through that in my own marriage different situations and I'm able to now help other people because I've I've gone through it I not only know the answers but I've gone through it so I'm able to have compassion compassionately care for them with the truth yeah that's powerful and, and sometimes that's, you know, that's what God's doing. And, and it's not a simplistic thing, you know, that God brings you through a very painful trial so that you can minister to person X a year and a half from now. It's much deeper, broader, wider than that. There's a lot of things God's doing, but that is one of the things that can happen. We end up having an amazing conversation with somebody who's going through a similar trial. And maybe that person's a Christian, but you can give hope to them and strengthen them. Or maybe the person's a non-Christian, and you can use it as a platform for sharing the gospel. Amen. How does pain factor into Christian contentment? Well... Obviously related to what we were just talking about, about afflictions and trials, but pain is uh, its just part of the curse. Pain came into the world through Adam. Death came through the sin of Adam, and God cursed Adam and cursed the ground because of Adam and said to him, through painful toil, you will wrestle with it and it will produce thorns and thistles. Thorns hurt and thistles hurt. And so there is pain in this world because of sin. Now, I think we can just start by acknowledging a silly, obvious thing to say, but pain hurts. It's painful, and we can't make that go away. There's no kind of Eastern mysticism trick. That's not what contentment is. We're not saying it doesn't hurt. We're not denying the obvious. But I think look to Jesus first and foremost. Jesus would, it would say from the cross how much agony he was in. But it says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And so the idea here is that this pain is working out a glorious end. It's working 
working out a glorious purpose. And we can have hope in that without denying that it hurts right now. There was a circumstance that I had with my wife a number of years ago. She's had several. She's, she has a degenerative disc disease and has had some se- severe neurological uh, implications of that. And after the second neck surgery that she had, she had, uh, she, it was her first night back from the hospital and she had uh, severe muscle spasms on either side of her incision. I'll never forget that. And she was in agony. It was like three in the morning. She was crying, crying out. We were praying. We we're asking God to just simply stop the muscle spasms. That's all, because it was just bringing her such pain. And uh, I was trying to help her, rub her, hold her in certain ways. And, and then she turned to me at one point and said, make it stop. I'll never forget that. And I said to her, I can't. And the one who can is choosing not to. And it's just as a Christian, I have to say, God could just move his little finger and stop those muscle spasms. He could cure her completely. He can do anything. But God, for some mysterious reason, sometimes wants his children to go through painful trials. And the best that we can do is endure those trials and trust in God and not not turn away from him or charge him with wrongdoing, but draw even closer to him and say, God, whatever it is you want to do through this painful trial, do it. Work in me. Help me to trust in you through this. You know, eventually the muscle spasms relaxed and about an hour later and it was done. But, you know, the pain is part of this world because of Adam and because of sin. Yeah, those uh, those muscle spasms really hurt. Um, I, uh, I, I've had that where I couldn't even, I, I literally fell out of bed. Um, I, I couldn't move. I was I was literally on the floor and my muscles were spasming. I played golf and um, all the time. And I mean, we're talking like over a hundred. I played it competitively. I was playing probably over a hundred something rounds a, a year. I was you know training. I was working out. I was I was phys- very very physically fit. Um, and uh, thankfully, my dad was a is he, he's retired now, but he was a, a specialized physical therapist. They call uh, somebody like my dad ortho physical therapist because he has so much training and he was able to get into the uh, muscles and my muscles in my lower back and my hip and and uh, get them to to cooperate and to function as God intended and um, just very thankful for having a dad that was that was able to help me with that and and yeah. and also the, the the story there God used that to bring me closer to my dad um, so not only did he get to use his god-given gift which he did have a god-given yeah. gift in that but I also got to get closer to my dad powerful I, I think it's just good for us to keep going back over one verse in scripture it's a big part of the book I'm writing on heaven and that's Revelation 21 4 that says in that world there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and if you think about mourning and crying we know that that honestly physical pain sometimes pales in comparison with emotional or psychological pain the agony of burying a child I mean some people would rather go through an amputation than that you know it's just and for years um, they grieve over that um, but in heaven what I'm going to argue in the book I'm writing is that there will be perfect memory but just no pain we won't have any pain for any of the things you remember we will just so be so filled with with joy and and confidence and and the final the final end of everything we went through was for the glory of God and we will see God's wisdom in all of it and it will bring us actually delight to see the tapestry of his wisdom and grace and it won't bring us any pain at all so we're going to a world where there be no pain no physical pain and no emotional pain and that's something we should always hold on to amen brother you say that uh, fear and anxiety are two of the greatest contentment thieves we will ever face how do fear and anxiety rob christians of joy in christ and what can christians do to fight against anxiety and fear and for contentment in the christian life yeah well they're they're related but different fear i think um 
seems to be kind of a clear and present danger, something that's going on right now. It's not theoretical. It's something's happening. Um, and anxiety is more something that may happen. You know, we're afraid of a possible thing that might happen. And so I think in the Bible, frequently, fear and faith are, are juxtaposed as opposites. Do not be afraid, only believe, something like that. Or um, fear not. The angels frequently say that, fear not. But Jesus, think about the disciples in the midst of that terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. And he's asleep in the back of the boat. He's asleep. And they're like, what in the world? I mean, don't you realize we're about to drown? Now, keep in mind, these men were professional fishermen who probably grew up on the Sea of Galilee. They knew it was their expert opinion they're about to go down. There's no doubt in their mind. And Jesus is asleep. And he rebukes them for their lack of faith. And I think that's fascinating because I think we just need to understand it's not true that boats don't go down and people don't drown. But that boat was not going down. And the people on that boat were not going to drown. I mean, think about it. God did not send his only begotten son into the world to die in a tragic boating accident. So uh, imagine, you know, the headlines in heaven. Son of God dies. You know, prophecy's not fulfilled. I mean, it is just impossible. And so Jesus is just, it's a good opportunity for me to get some, some sleep. And so there was, there was that need to believe and trust what God was doing. Now, they were unique. These were apostles. Uh, Jesus' time on earth was was there for a specific purpose. And I'm not saying that, that we couldn't be in the midst of a literal storm and think, you know, we actually might drown. And it could happen. God's people do drown. But I think about what John Wesley experienced when he was on a boat with a, a group of Moravians, and they were in a severe storm in the Atlantic, and the ship looked like it was about to break apart and everyone on board would drown. And the Moravians were just singing praise songs. They were ready to die. So we go back to that statement about contentment. Paul didn't need food or clothing or shelter because he didn't need to keep living because it was better by far to depart and be with Christ. So we just have to kind of retrain our minds and say, you know, I will live as long as God wills. And when he wills to take me out of this world, it will be pleasant to me to pass out of this realm of suffering and misery and sin and go to a perfect world. In the meantime, I want to be faithful. So what we say to our senior adults here and to all of us, we try to train people and get them ready to die well, you know? So when when you are in your last hours, days, weeks on earth. Just be a man or a woman of faith. Put put your faith on display for your, your children and your grandchildren to see and for the medical staff to see that you are a person who believes in heaven. You're a person who believes that, that your sins are forgiven. So that's the issue of fear, that we should not be afraid of whatever God chooses to do in our lives. Don't fear anything. And then anxiety, Jesus just works on that. Uh, in Matthew 6, he just goes on and on about worrying about food and clothing like the pagans do and worrying, worrying about your lifespan and the things that happen. He said, don't don't be anxious. There's so many uh, words he gives in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Uh, you know, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow worry about itself. You know, Paul gives a similar advice in, the, in anxiety. He says, be anxious for nothing, Philippians 4, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is Christian contentment. You're in the midst of a situation that makes you anxious, you give it to God in prayer, and you don't allow yourself to be discontent and anxious. You just keep telling yourself the truth. There's a king who rules, and he loves me, and everything he does is right. Well, very well said, brother. Very well. We live in a time of vast advancements from modern medicine to revolutionary technology, and yet we are more discontent than ever. Why is that? Well, it's a big topic, isn't it? I think, first of all, technology, material things do not produce contentment. It's just two different things. They, so uh, becoming wealthier actually does not make us more content. Um, it, it actually can be a ground for more anxiety. Um, these, these labor-saving devices 
appliances, even all the way up to the amazing digital technology, the smartphones. All of these things have made our lives easier, but they are not going to produce contentment because contentment really is a spiritual matter. It's a matter of faith in Christ. It's a matter of, of a healthy soul and a healthy walk with God. Um, in the book, I, I talk about a circumstance uh, when I was in an airport and I was waiting for a, a flight and, and a businessman walked by and uh, he was well-dressed talking on a, on a cell phone. And I was, it was funny, Dave, because I was reading a wonderful historical account of the Mayflower crossing in the North Atlantic and the storms that they went through um, in the, you know, in 1620. And it was really a good history. I'm reading that. And so I'm kind of in, in the world of what it was like to travel on a small ship like the Mayflower in 1620. And this businessman walks by and, he, and I heard him say to whoever he was talking to, it was a total nightmare. We were on the tarmac for like another 50 minutes, maybe even an hour. And, you know, I don't know if I'm even going to make my click connecting flight. And, he, and then his voice trailed off. And I just started to laugh. I'm like... <laughs> I mean, we're not in a in a wooden vessel in the North Atlantic in 1620. We are not in a Conestoga wagon trying to get across some overflowing river, you know, in the middle of the U.S. We are in an air-conditioned steel and glass airport trying to catch a plane. And uh, it's just funny. I think that I almost wonder if our technology, Dave, has made us soft, has made us expect an easy life, expect where every problem can be solved by the application of technology. And we have faulty expectations expectations of a life without pain that's uh wow um just reminded of jesus you know he says in this world you will have tribulation and paul says you know in the christian life you will face uh you will face hardship you will face trials and uh the christian life is not a life of ease it's it's hard it's but we have christ and he is as we've talked about he is always sufficient um, and yeah. I love Hebrews thirteen five. You know, it says that He will never leave us nor forsake us, and that's a promise of God. That that's something that we can take to the bank. Uh, we can trust, not be in and of itself, but because of the character of God that's behind it. Um, and I just love that. Um, in the book, you touch on contentment within family life. How can parents and spouses be models of Christian content? Well, I think we have to realize, first of all, marriage and parenting are two of the greatest gifts that God has ever given us. And they are rich and powerful gifts, but they also can be, uh, family can be a battleground. You know, it's something that Satan has been attacking. He attacked Adam and Eve's marriage and their relationship. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's frequently a battleground. And so it is a hard thing for a man and a woman, a godly, even if they're godly, uh, to, to have consistent contentment in the marriage. Uh, I remember a, a humorous quote from Martin Luther, and he said, "What a ruin Adam has made of our sin, of our of our nature, and 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 even of marriage." He said, uh, "Adam and Eve probably had nine hundred years to argue." Adam or Eve saying, "You ate the apple," and Adam saying, "Yes, but you gave it to me." And I just think that's typical Luther humor. He, he but imagine nine hundred years of a marital squabble. Um, so I think we just have to realize that we have to fight for contentment in our marriages. We have to cover each other's sins with grace. Uh, we know each other better than anyone else knows us. We know the, the sins that we struggle with, and we have to be gracious. And we do have to set an example for each other and for our children in Christian contentment. This is an important battle to fight and to win. So if, if our spouses see us grumbling and discontent and unhappy day after day, uh, that really drags the other person down, and then it sets a bad example for our children. So I think we really want to, um, to, 
to to fight for contentment within our marriages and, and in our parenting. And I love what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. He says, there, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So um, that's right before his teaching on contentment in Philippians uh, 4.10 and following. So he, he says, look, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So I think especially a, a husband is the head of the house, a head of the wife. Um, he needs to set an example in Christian contentment. But it's hard. It's not, it's not an easy battle. What is that? What does that look like? Well, I think I, I think it's good for husbands and wives to come together and pray. You know, so uh, so take this topic uh, and and just lay it before the Lord with each other and and, and just be honest. Say, Lord, you know, I've, I've not been very content today. Or even as, as the day begins, you know, have a family devotion together and say, Lord, teach us to be content today. Give us a give us the strength and the power to be content in any and every situation. Help us to accept whatever you choose for our lives. So I think making it a matter of prayer and a matter of study. That's what the book is for, and, and even better than my book, obviously, studying the scriptures, so that we can actually live out this life of contentment with each other. We can lean on each other. We can ask for help. I mean, you said earlier in our conversation, that's why we have each other, and I think that's in a, in a Christian marriage. The husband has the wife, and the wife has the husband, and the children have the parents, and we can we can um, help each other to be content. Amen, brother. What are the dangers of a complaining heart, and how do we fight against complaining in the Christian life? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and that's that this is where the topic gets pretty convicting. Uh, let me just tell you a quick story. I, I had the opportunity to teach on this topic at, at three different missions conferences in, in Europe, um, last and one in Africa, actually. I think it was last year. It was funny because when the missionaries heard that I was speaking on contentment, they were initially really excited, and they thought um, that, you know, they, they, were, they were thrilled. Oh, this is going to be really, really wonderful. But then as I started to unfold and got into the negative side, which is the, the sin, the great sin of complaining they kind of turned on me some of them did and thought that i'd been sent by the by the mission agency to get them to stop complaining against the their authority figures on the mission field and i didn't know them at all it was funny but it was like i was a secret agent that was coming in to tell them to cut out all that complaining and then the third phase is like you know we realized that complaining is a problem and we're grateful for the teaching and they settled in and and, uh said yeah this is going to be a lifetime battle but it's worth fighting so it's just kind of funny the three phases so uh the issue of complaining is the negative side. If you are not content, then you are discontent, pretty much by definition. And if you're discontent, you're probably going to voice it, and the way you voice it is by murmuring or complaining against God. And I think what we have to realize is how frequently we do it. I mean, it's amazing. Any and every situation, there's opportunities to complain. I mean, it's too hot, it's too cold, the traffic's moving too slowly. I don't feel well. You know, I didn't like the food. Uh, I don't like this. I don't, this happened, that happened. We just, it's just a, a seething cauldron, a world of discontentment all the time. So we have to realize that God, this it dishonors God. It's a sin against God. Jeremiah Burroughs does a good job showing how angry God was about Israel's complaining in the desert. Remember how they, uh, they should have crossed the Jordan River, but the 10 spies misled them and they had to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And they started complaining about the manna and God sent poisonous snakes. That was why where the bronze serpent story came in. They, he hates their complaining. And then it became convicting. It's like, boy, I complain more than I think I do. I complain a lot. So just for me to acknowledge that it's there and that it's a great sin, it dishonors God, and that I, I would ask God to work this sin out of my life, that's where I would start on the dangers of complaining. Well, Andy, uh, you write about attaining and protecting contentment in your book on contentment. How do Christians attain contentment and protect it in their lives? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that contentment is just a subset 
mindset of the spirit-filled life. It just comes from abiding in Christ like the branch in the vine and from walking in the power of the spirit. Uh, if you look at components of Christian contentment, you're going to find them listed in uh, the fruit of the spirit. For example, uh, joy and peace would be key elements to Christian contentment. Those are part of the fruit of the spirit. So first and foremost, just to be certain that we are empowered by the spirit. And then uh, secondly, that we realize that once we have attained a sense of peacefulness and trust in we then have to defend it. We have to fight for it. We have to fight for peace and joy in the Christian life. So we have to put on the spiritual armor and expect that our feelings of submission to our, our Father, to the to our King, is going to be assaulted by the world of flesh and the devil. So we have to put on the spiritual armor and fight for joy and peace in any and every situation. We also need to realize there's a certain kind of skill that comes from learning to be content, uh, like a skillful warrior learns how to wield the sword and the shield. So I think we just need to realize we get opportunities every single day to practice contentment because Paul talks about being content in any and every situation and that is guaranteed to happen to you today and to me any and every situation so just being mindful of it uh, at every moment would you say that contentment is kind of like the secret to battling Satan's lies in our in our lives I think it's a big part of it uh, just being mindful of the fact that the earthly circumstances that we're going through right now have been ordained by our loving Heavenly Father. That's the that's the central concept of contentment. God has chosen to bring this into our lives, and we trust Him. And so Satan's going to want to attack that. But yeah, being mindful of the fact that God has chosen the circumstance, and Satan wants to make us discontent in it. Mm, that's really a good word. Well, brother, you know that ministry is often hard. You deal with difficult people, challenging situations, visit people in the hospital you do funerals and well the list goes on and on right so sp sure. speaking to pastors now can you please help them to grow in contentment as they minister to difficult hurting and struggling people yeah it's a great question and it's something that's on my mind i think first we have to realize that we want to exemplify what we're teaching so first we have to be content and we have to fight that battle ourselves we can't basically say do as i say not as i do paul was a, a role model of christian contentment and so he could point the Philippians, when he wrote Philippians 4, he could point them to his own example when he planted the church, when he and Silas were singing in that Philippian jail. So pastors need to start with themselves. Say, Lord, would you make me a content man? Strengthen me to be a content man today. But then secondly, I think you need to teach the principles to people before the afflictions come. It's just a lot easier to go out ahead of the afflictions and say, God's going to bring afflictions and trials in your life. He's going to use them to build you up. So when they come, you know, don't murmur against God. Don't charge him with wrongdoing. It's just a lot easier to do that from the pulpit than to do that necessarily in the funeral parlor in the, or in the hospital room. Although we can do some of it then, mostly then you're just going to mourn with those who mourn, put an armor on somebody grieving. Um, but you want to get out ahead of the trial. And then even the person going through the trial, when things have settled down and they and they really are ready to hear from the Lord and they're ready to hear scripture, then you can do some teaching and say, you know, keep in mind that Jesus said in this world you'll have troubles, take heart, I've overcome the world. You, know, you can bring some scriptures into the person's life. Uh, so you just have to be sensitive to the to the moment. But I would say first, exemplify it yourself, and second, teach the principles of Christian contentment before the trials come. And then when the trials come, just be a friend and a godly uh, companion. And then when the trial has settled down, then continue to teach and, and give pr people perspective of the suffering that they've been going through. Mm, that's really, really a helpful answer. So, uh, sir, just as we wrap up this conversation, I really have enjoyed it. Um, can you give us a few takeaways on this topic as the listeners go ahead and pick up your book? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I've seen that just the beauty of Christian contempt 
contentment. I've not attained to it like Paul said he had. It's something that I, I get glimmers of it, of what it's like to be content in a consistent, stable, steady sort of walk with Christ. So I'm learning it. I'm not presenting myself as any expert. I'm presenting Christ as the ultimate expert and Paul as the secondary expert. But just to see the, the glories and the beauties of Christian contentment and say, this is the kind of person I want to be. I don't want to be weak. I, wanna, I don't want to be blown and tossed by the winds of circumstances. I want to be a stable, strong, rooted Christian who trusts my Heavenly Father in any and every situation. I want to put that faith on display to the people who are watching me, both Christians and non-Christians alike. This is what I want to do. This is the person I want to be in my life. But I can't do it apart from the work of the Lord through the Spirit. So Lord, would you please work this in me day after day? Make me a far more stable, content person 10 years from now than I am right now. Mm, that is a, that is a wonderful, wonderful answer. And as I've told you, um, I, I really appreciate this book. It, it came at a, a really good time in my life as I'm learning these things uh, in more detail. So thank you so much for your work, sir. And uh, may God continue to bless you. Well, David, it's just been a delight for me to talk to you, to um, to discuss these principles, and you know, pray God's richest blessing on your ministry. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.